Hello and welcome to the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane. Beep. Stan, how are you? It's good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm waving. <laughs> I'm not waving this time. Aw. Also with us here in Chicago, it's the Godfather himself, Dave Harberger. Stan, can you tell me what time it is? It is nine, I mean, 8.32. You know what that is? Prime time. Ooh. Also with us here in Chicago, our resident snowman, last but not least, Zach Colhan. Hey, good to be here. No jokes, let's, let's do this. <laughs> Fair. All right. First things first, we got to start the show off with a little bit of knock-knock. Who's there? Housekeeping. Guys, I've been streaming. Yeah, I like it. It's been looking good. Today I did a bit of a President's Day stream. Twitch.tv slash Stan underscore I-S-L-A-V. So it's my full name, Stanislav. So he is the better Stanislav, because if you just put in Stanislav, you're going to end up with that Sifka guy and watching Hearthstone and... Just make sure you get the right Stanislav. Nobody wants that schmuck. Yeah. Legendary magic player and innovator, Stanislav Sifka. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. It's my turn, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I'm i not setting up a schedule just yet, but I really like doing the Twitch stream. Today, I was I was streaming Blue-Red Electro Dominance Living End. That was hard and fun. Did you guys watch? What'd you think? I like that. Stan. See, Stan, remember when you got just you got that casual five zero the other day? Yeah. Okay. So it was my third ever friendly league on MTGO. It was my first time streaming a league, and I and I got a trophy with Mono Red Phoenix. Yeah, it's no big deal. Zach just died a little inside, but no, it's I'm I'm a mature adult who can handle things in a grown up way, and I'm happy for my good close friend Stan. <laughs> How do you feel about the fact that I also trophied on Saturday? On- mm, I don't. I don't know if we need to put this <laughs> in the show. <laughs> I like how like how little you were able to sit on your laurels there, Dave, and just had to be like, oh, I'm gonna casually. I did it too. too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to paint the picture for the listeners that I was the first of the four of us to ever get a trophy in the friendly league, and then that same evening, Dave tied with me so now we may have a friendly competition among the four of us who knows we'll yeah, see. Tr- trophy, tr- trophy count downwards. one average trophy per person 0.5 yeah that's not a great resume for for getting people to listen to our podcast but <laughs> sure or experts Guys, we, i can't believe it one of us did it we, one of us finally <laughs> one trophy is a very casual spike number of trophies yeah. <laughs> also if this is your first time listening to the dive down welcome And most importantly, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. You should just pause the show right now. Go hit the subscribe button in your podcast app, then resume the show. You'll be happier you did. Every Friday morning is just going to be a little brighter. It's going to be your modern Friday morning pod of choice forever. Do you think people really have to pause to be able to go and hit the subscribe button? (laughs) Can't they do it it while they're listening to stuff? (laughs) Well, they need to focus on our on our chatter and banter. Ah, otherwise, okay. they might miss. They might miss important. this banter, for example. On this week's episode, tournament report is going to focus on GP Strasbourg as well as the Magic Online MCQ. Then, for the dive down, we are going to talk about all the Primeval Titan decks out there, with special focus on Amulet Titan. 
And finally, for the wind down, we got another listener question. So, first things first, Zach, what do you have at the news desk? So, we're going to start off with a league that happened on 215. And I think maybe going forward, we can go viewing leagues the way that David mentioned last episode, where he called them a sketchbook. So I think that we can sort of look for these, look what the pulse of the format or idea of it is, and then give some sustainable hot takes. So nothing too wild, but maybe a car you think is going to get big or a certain deck you think is on the rise, something like that. Is a sustainable hot take, does that come from like not a factory farm? Is it like a free range hot (laughs) take? (laughs) It's a grass fed hot take. So the decks in this dump, there was nothing too spectacular or out of the ordinary. There was average modern stuff, uh, Phoenix, Affinity, Burn, etc. Some decks that are worth pointing out where there are two Sultai decks, a Sultai Reclamation and sort of a Sultai Jundi Controlly deck. The Sultai Midrange one was running an Ishkana in the side, which I think is a pretty Sweet. neat card. I love that card. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been in some Jund decks too recently. It's it's got some it helps against uh Phoenix. It's it's good in general. It's some pretty cool pretty cool tech. Yeah. I think that one thing I would point out here too is that the uh, the Sultai Reclamation deck was here on this uh, league from 215. But what was interesting was that of the decks that we talked about last week, I think that the only ones that made it onto the 5 list on the 215 dump here were Sultai Reclamation and Electro Dominance. So Tribal Zoo gone, Red Green kind of value gone. Um, the other thing is that I also saw a version of the Reclamation deck that was Bant in the modern challenge this week, that was pretty interesting too. So I think people are more and more starting to play around with wilderness reclamation plus growth spiral plus big mana moves. Yeah, definitely a card that's making some headway. Another thing I think is interesting pointing out in uh, this list or what we can see is that a lot of the blue-white control decks aren't running Terminus anymore in any number. So I wonder if that's because of the way that Magic makes these decks or procures them and that they're supposed to be different and varied, or is that a real thing that people are changing in the meta? I think it's a great question. I mean, after I saw your note here, I kind of, I thought about it for a little bit and it just kind of felt like maybe, maybe just against the decks that are out there right now, Wrath just isn't as good as it was a couple of months ago when there was a lot of spirits and a lot of humans in the metagame. And what people want instead is targeted removal and counterspell disruption and then kind of powerful plays on their side. So I, th- I thought that was a really interesting thing you noticed, Zach. I mean, it's not really great against Arclight or Dredge or Burn. Right, so I'm not sure if you really want to play those cards. It can be good against Arclight, I guess, but not as good as Path. Why is that bad against Dredge? Since Dredge is all about a big board full of creatures, it's just different in the way it gets them out there. Because it can refill from the graveyard really easily, so like, like right it, away. Yeah, yeah, like if you like if you wrath like a you know a few blood gas and some prize amalgams, as soon as you get, hit a land, you're getting all that stuff back. And I guess in the Terminus's case, it puts those creatures on the bottom of their deck, but you still have other dredge engine cards that can just fill your graveyard again. Yeah, you can crack a fetch too, shuffle everything around, and then dredge some stuff. Or you just, yeah. lo- you just you know you just dredge back up a life from the loam, cast life from the loam, hit a land drop, good to go. Seems good. We saw a Dovin pop up in control, but maybe that's probably not a real thing, and more of just someone trying some spice out. It was two. There was two Dovin. There was two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Not two decks with Dovin. There was one deck with two Dovins. Oh, that's, yeah, that's okay. much, well, that's much less misleading. <laughs> yeah, much less, much less impressive. I'm just trying to make Stan's pick look really good. Okay, I know. Thank you. Yeah, so I think that's what we're going to be looking at for the dump for the most part. I think we're going to move the on dump. to the GP. The dump. We're going to take a look at the GP Strasbourg, the modern Mythic Champion qualifier. So this was not the main event. This was a side event, but it did have a pretty large attendance of people there. So I think it's still worth looking at. 
There are some decks in this top eight that we've been seeing peeking their heads around. Some strategies are becoming more prevalent, and we can just start off right away with that top eight. In first and second place are black-green rock decks, which yes. is pretty wild, yeah. Well, I like, I mean, I think these decks are built smartly. I mean, they're nothing too special in the main deck. I, th- I think what's what they're doing smartly right now is that they have good anti-graveyard stuff going on. So, like, this first deck had the full sideboard playset of Leyline of the Voids. And the second and the seventh deck, sorry for the spoilers there, uh, it had, like, two main deck Kalidas and then two Graph Diggers Cage in the side. I think that's something we're going to see pop up more in sideboards as we see Dredge continue its resurgence. So there are three rock decks in this top eight. Shane just said a moment ago that seventh place was also that. There were also two rock decks in the top eight of Grand Prix Toronto uh, a couple weeks ago. What do you guys think is going on that's making rock uh, kind of have a viable position in the metagame suddenly? Maybe this is an, an, uh, an answer for our rock, Shane. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mentioned I mentioned this a little bit last week, and I think those points stand. I think it takes very little damage off its lands. It also f- fights against a wider array of decks more powerfully than something like Jun does, because it can main deck for Field of Ruins, which allows it to attack things like uh, Valakut decks, allows it to attack the Titan decks a little bit. And so that lack of losing life off its mana base helps against the pretty linear aggressors decks right now and especially things like burn and phoenix it has removal that i think can line up if you draw it well against the threats that decks are are spitting out right now and the sideboard's really flexible you can run some sweepers you can run some artifacts you can run some graveyard hate you can run some main deck graveyard hate so all around i mean it's still offering the same semi-strong black green mid-range strategy but i think right now it's just able to be built in a way that allows it to remove the things that need to be removed and have a sideboard strategy that makes sense. Very well said. Thank you. So moving on from first and second, we have a blue eye control in third. This one's a little spicy, no terminus, as we'd mentioned earlier. And this one has four thing in the ice in it as well. There's a lot of spice in this deck. I'm also seeing two absorb, two main deck getting of the trials, no Jace. And I have no idea what to think about it. It still has to settle the wreckage for sweepers. So Thing in the Ice isn't the only sweeper effect, but it's got a ton of these one mana spells such as Spell Snare, Oust, Oust, Opt. Yeah, it's got a bunch of cheap spells to help flip Thing in the Ice faster too. Uh, it's interesting to see a, a deck add, a blue-white control deck add creatures as part of its control package. It's kind of an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Do you think it might speak to just how powerful Thing in the Ice is and how it wasn't adequately respected for a long time? Yeah, I think that we've also mentioned that we all sort of agreed that Gideon of the Trials is an underplayed card in Modern and is quite a good Modern card. So especially if you can play a card that can protect it as well as Thing in the Ice does, and you can just ride that card to victory or ride ride it to a very hard pillow fort that your opponent can't get through while you hit them with a giant monster. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all threats, right? Thing of the Ice is really a threat. Gideon the Trials is a threat. And so it's, it's sort of like a blue-white control plan with a much more active kind of win condition uh, idea behind it than what we're used to seeing with the full reactive grindy package. Yeah, the only thing is missing is just a playset of Dovin Bon. Are you second on this card? Stan? Not even the new three-mana Dovin, but the old Kaladesh mm, Dovin. Okay, nice save. Uh, so in fourth, we have Humans, pretty stock list. Fifth, Dredge, once again, pretty stock. Sixth, Eldrazi Tron, 
which is what a deck that is, as we've mentioned, just a very good deck. Chalice will win games, and a turn three Reality Smasher will win games. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> well, a sixth place amount of the time. No, it's really good. Uh, seventh is that aforementioned uh, Black Green Rock, and then eighth, Mono Red Prison, which is a deck that has been just consistently popping up for what feels like a few months now. Mm-hmm. Zach, are you going to go full prison sometime soon? I think I am. I'm only a few gemstone caverns away, and that's something that I can just pick up when next time I'm at a game store. So I might. I have everything else, and it's pretty neat. I think I need to do a little more reading because it plays much differently than Scred does. So I I, I don't get to play the holding up cards mid rangey value game. I'm more I'm playing Chalice on two on turn one. Right. Simeon Spirit Guide. Here we come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we're going to end the tournament report with the February 17th Magic Online Mythic Championship Qualifier. So we have a full 32 of all the decks, which is nice. We're just going to go through the top eight. And if you guys want to make any comments about the rest, we totally can. So first, which is uh, Suicide Zoo, which was written as Blueless Shadow on Nime. It, it's an interesting deck with a pretty neat name. Uh, Shane, do you have a take on that? Being listed as Blueless Shadow is kind of like a less dicey name to call Suicide Zoo. Yeah. Yeah, magic is less edgy than it was once upon a time, that's for sure. Uh, Hollow One coming in second, which is interesting. That's not a deck we've uh, we've seen sort of fall off in popularity, but it came in second place here. Yeah, it's still strong. I think people just like kind of going to what they think is sort of the next broken, aggressive, linear strategy, and Hollow One doesn't suck. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I feel like because the deck was so new, a lot of people that are playing the deck didn't their deck didn't evolve into hollow one they went out and bought the cards and built hollow one so if you have a lot of that shell and then phoenix gets printed and it's not that hard to move over why wouldn't you that's pretty much exactly what i did by the way with my okay. paper deck <laughs> terrific <laughs> and then third fourth fifth and sixth in this tournament are all dredge this is horrifying oh yeah <laughs> I, I did not it. know this at all <laughs> I wonder if my dredge cards I just bought went up in price at all. I, I cannot wait to play this deck in paper. I gotta tell you Your what. Your number one speculation podcast. <laughs> MTG Finance. Yeah. Shane, I still can't get over the fact that like six months ago you were like, don't build dredge. And I was like, ah, dredge is pretty cool. And you're like, don't build it. And now you're like, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a real dredgeman. My, I've come from a long, long family of dredgemen. <laughs> Me and my dredgeman father. <laughs> he came over from Ravnica on a boat. No, what's, what's, <laughs> <laughs> no, what's, what's wild about this, it, this single hand, this tournament, I think single handedly took this deck to the top of the modern metagame, metagame on goldfish. Like, so, uh, Sodek is like a dredge master and he went 9-0 ended up 5th you know these main decks are all like 73 out of 75 cards the same and the only real difference is like maybe a third conflagrate is replacing a Gol- Golgari Thog or there's some like really slight mana base differences and but we go back to like our conversation on tweaking and last week these sideboards are where the differences show up because people are trying to attack what they perceive as a metagame in different ways but the main deck is ironed out do you think this is an indication of how strong the deck is? Do you think it's that people didn't pack enough graveyard hate in their cider main? No, there's hate. Someone made an interesting post about like how the average uh, number of pieces of sideboard hate is like 3.5 in terms of things that could hate on graveyard. And the rise of Phoenix uh, has made you know even main deck surgical something that I've seen pop up. And so, you know, people are trying to surgical things out of the yard. I think it's a matter of, you know, one, do you draw it? And two, dredge doesn't just fold to a surgical extraction by any means. It can certainly slow you down. But um, unless you're getting something like a, a ley line of the void that 
the dredge player just doesn't get their nature's claim or something like that, then you know that can really hurt. But unless you're really trying to hate out dredge with the real silver bullets, it can fight through soft hate pretty well. Yeah, we see more main deck relic or progenitus. And I think that's a good card, but if they pop it too early, sometimes Dredge can just get back and win through it anyway. Yeah, and so I've been trying to get Dredge going online. Um, I think that in a week or two, we're probably going to want to do a dive down into Dredge to talk about you know how it plays, how to beat it, um, things like that, our experiences playing with it and against it. In 7th, we see a Mono Red Prison, so that's popping up in tournaments all across the world, it would seem. And then in 8th, we have War Prison, which, as we mentioned uh, last week, is a deck that is very hard to play and very entertaining to watch if your friends are playing it. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that War Prison is going to slowly become like the KCI thing where people are like, Ugh, am I going to play this? Like, it seems really hard, but like it's going to be winning like 55% of its games. Oh, I don't know if War Prison is going to be the next coming of KCI, but we'll talk about that in a second. Mm. Yeah, War Prison is a more like Lantern where it's uh, it can be a like very boring or hard to play against but it doesn't just beat you you guys want to round out some commentary on the top 16 top 32 i mean in the top 32 there were nine dredge decks you guys nine out of 32 top decks were all dredge and that was more than double the next which was uh four is it phoenix decks um and then there was three hardened scales decks two rock two mono red phoenix and two hollow ones um and a bunch of one ofs so i mean i'm it's not too surprising to me to see these results because that much dredge can really push out burn and death shadow decks from tournaments creeping chill just does so much for you and also you can just race you can just race nicely and they can't really remove your creatures efficiently makes sense so uh, before we, we get off of tournament results, uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention everybody is that um, KCI 2.0, uh, to close the loop on that KCI 2.0 comment, is that Canister, the master of, of KCI, actually 5-0'd on stream uh, over the weekend with a new version of KCI basically replacing uh, KCI itself with Grinding Station and Semblance Anvil. Yes. So he immediately tweeted about it afterwards and said, check out this deck list. Looks like you should have banned Ancient Stirrings and Mox Opal. And then probably should have just put ha at the end of the tweet, <laughs> which he didn't do. But um, there's a lot of people talking about that online recently. So I feel like this guy could win a 5-0 with like a ham sandwich. A lot of pros could, and he's sort of the master of, of this archetype. But I thought it was interesting that there was so much enthusiasm around it. And so be really curious to see uh, what the next artifact de- deck that everybody hates is, whether it's going to be we're prison, whether it's going to be this new new grinding station deck or what. I actually played against this deck today on stream. It was uh, the last deck I played against in the friendly league, and I won, but not because I outplayed my opponent, but rather I did the living end thing and created a board of lots of big creatures that they couldn't deal with. And my KCI 2.0 opponent rage quit, and then I won by default because they timed out. Uh, was that your first rage quit? I don't know. It's like a baptism. <laughs> it is. On, on To have, sit there for five minutes and wait for their timer to go off is always always fun. All right, that wraps it up for Tournament Report this week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're doing a dive down on Amulet Titan, Primeval Titan, and all of his friendly card friends. Stay with us. Hey guys, what's big, green, and clearly the best card in the cycle? Uh, you tell me, man. 
Progenitus. No, it's Primeval Titan. Prime time. That's so mean to the Titans, though. They're all so stupid good. Yeah, but they're not prime time good. They were all amazing in standard yeah. during the during that the time that they were around, which was kind of absurd. They were like, I don't know if you guys were playing standard during M10, M11, but Primeval Titan was a fifty dollar card during yes. a standard, if I remember right, and you so do. was uh, actually it might have been M M11, M12. I don't think they were in M10. Yeah, M11. I think. But um, oh, they got reprinted in M12. <laughs> they got reprinted in another core set, which was mind blowing when it happened. But they went from being $50 cards to being like $12 cards oh, okay. after that, after they got printed again. But anyway, yeah, those cards are all dumb. And Primeval Titan turns out to be the one that's the dumbest in modern. I may have mentioned that I recently started playing Magic Online for the first time. And when I set up my account, one of the first decks I got was from friend of the show and a personal friend, Ian, who gave me all 75 cards for an Amulet Titan deck and just said, here, have fun, learn it if you can, go nuts. So for the first couple of weeks of Moto, I was playing a lot of Amulet Titan. I did about three leagues with it. Never did particularly well with them. Learned a lot. Figured out how the deck works. I'm not scared of it anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's not something you just pick up and learn. Well, that's exactly what I did. I, to be honest, I didn't even look up any deck techs before I started playing with it. I just said, well, I'm, I, I bet I can figure out in some free play open rooms. And You're crazy, That's exactly man. what I did. And And... and to my credit, not to say I'm great or anything, but I won the first game I played with the deck in a free open room play mode. Because you were playing against someone who was on like mono black skeletons in modern or something like that. Which is a very real deck, Dave. I don't appreciate the tone. Pongify. my ghoul tribal. So before we dive into talking about this deck works, this deck has a reputation for being like the hardest deck one of the hardest decks to play. Amulet Titan, right? And also one of the hardest decks to play against. Yeah, Amulet Titan itself. Do you guys feel, I mean, how do you, how often have you played against it and do you feel like it's sort of the uh, boogeyman that people sort of draw it out to be? Again, literally never seen it. What? Shane, you've never played against it? Wow. No. You got to get a moto more often. It is everywhere on moto. Yeah. Everywhere. I, I mean, I've played, you know, I've played a handful of leagues in the past month or so. I just haven't seen it. Zach, how about you? Yeah, I've played against this deck quite a bit. As we will go into, I have some cards that are particularly good against it in my main deck, so I have not really struggled too much. Mm -hmm. um, I do struggle when they resolve a Primeval Titan, as most decks do, as that card is very good when it lands, when it attacks, when it exists on the board, it is doing good things. But it's an interesting deck that I do see pop up, and it's I think I mistook what it was at first and thought it was some sort of ramp aggro deck when it seems to be more of a combo deck. Yeah. I've I've had a lot of trouble beating this deck from the flip side, so I'm hoping that Stan gives us some really good insights for what to do and how to prepare. Yeah, that's the plan. The only Titan decks I've run up into recently have been uh, the Titan Shift decks, which play a lot like Scape Shift, which I'm used to. Yeah, so we're going to go through Amulet Titan mostly, but we'll also touch on some of the other alternative versions of this deck, including Titan Shift, Hive Titan, and Titan Breach, to kind of explain what makes these decks different and why they might have some similar game plans, thanks to Primeval Titan being a important win con and just being a really powerful card in modern. Yeah, dude, take, take the reins on this Titan, this Amulet Titan, man. I know you've been playing a lot of it. Yeah, so in general, what we want to cover are what are these decks' plan of attack and how they win. Also, what makes them unique from one another? And then, most importantly, how can you play against them and how can you beat them? What are some of the best sideboard plans or what are just the best decks against these this group of primeval titan decks 
All right, so we're gonna start with Amulet Titan because I think in general, this is the most popular version of Primeval Titan dot deck. In fact, we've been seeing a lot of the pieces start to grow in value over the last week or two, especially Azusa, Lost But Seeking, and Teleria West. So one of the things that makes this deck particularly interesting and modern is that it's an example of a deck that survived a ban. There used to be a deck called Amulet Bloom that had a lot of the same shell, but included a two-mana sorcery called Summer Bloom that lets you play three lands in one turn. Yeah, NBD. Yeah, that that card was one of those things. I remember when this deck was going on the first time, and it's sort of, I think we mentioned on a previous podcast, it emerged from that play group up in Madison, Wisconsin, via Sam Black and kind of Justin Cohen yep. and, and a number of players up there. I remember just looking at Summer Bloom and being like, how does this card exist? And like, pay two mana to play three extra lands. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, okay. So that didn't last too long. Yeah, at the time, Sam Black was noted for calling Amulet Bloom the better Tron. And in playing Primeval Titan, it reminded me a little bit of the play patterns in Tron, but we'll get into that more. Summer Bloom was basically banned out of existence in January of 2016 in the same banning announcement as Splinter Twin. So there was a pretty big shakeup to the format at the time. Yeah, RIP. But this new version of Amulet Titan emerged by the end of that same year, in late 2016, with none other than Matt Nass really bringing the new version of the deck back into the limelight. Yeah, he brought it to GP Indie in like 2016, and it was called like Amulet Scout back then because Secura Tribe Scout replaced Summer Bloom in the deck. And obviously it's been refined over the next two years to be where it is now, which is one of the tier one decks of the format. So the goal of Amulet Titan is to cast a Primeval Titan as quickly as possible, which can be done as early as turn two. And even if you have a crazy, perfect, ideal hand, you can get a turn two kill, but the stars really have to align. It's nearly impossible to pull it off unless you have the right pieces in hand. The general line of play with this deck and what makes Primeval Titan so good is when he enters the battlefield, he fetches two lands. He is a 6-mana six 6-6 six, six trample, cost 4, green, green. And when he enters the battlefield or attacks, you may search your library for up to 2 land cards, put them on the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. So once you've cast Primeval Titan, you can give it haste with its fetching ability, and the cards you typically grab the first time you cast it are Slayer Stronghold, which is a land that reads tap to add colorless, and it also has the ability red-white tap, target creature gets plus two, plus zero, and gains vigilance and haste until end of turn. Likewise, you grab a Boros Garrison, which is the red-white Ravnica block, bounce land. So you can produce the red-white mana immediately, tap it with the Slayer Stronghold. Primeval Titan becomes an 8-6, trample, vigilance, haste. When it swings, you fetch two more lands. Yes, but to do that, we you need an amulet in play too, right? Because if Titan brings the lands in tapped, you need the amulet to bring the lands in play untapped, right? Yeah, that's very important. You need amulet in order to do a lot of the most broken stuff in this deck. And what is this amulet we speak of? Thank you, Zach. So Amulet of Vigor is a one-mana artifact that reads, if a land enters the battlefield tapped, it enters untapped instead. So the way it combos and makes the deck work is all these dual mana bounce lands from Ravnica block that tap for two they come in untapped and you can generate a ton of mana and it's also got some other cards in the deck we're going to 
go over that lets you generate lots of mana by playing multiple lands in the single turn. And the bouncing, you can do some fun stuff with too, right? Where like when you bring in a bounce land, you can bounce like a value land or like your gemstone mine, not cavern. Yeah, the most typical examples that I've seen are bouncing gemstone mine because they use that very early to get kind of like whatever color mana they need. So you'll use a bounce land to bring gemstone mine back to your hand and then put the counters back on it in some real like retro play there. Cause I think gemstone mine was originally in Weatherlight, if I remember right, which is going way back. Um, and then the other thing you see is that they bounce, uh, value lands like Calibre, uh, Crossroads or Bajuka Bog mm-hmm. to be able to gain a bunch of life over and over again or Exile Soundwood's graveyard over and over again. Yeah. Colony Garden is another land that. Oh, yeah. Is maximized from bouncing a lot because you can make a ton of zero one plant tokens, which in creature matchups just serve as blockers. Sure. Yeah. One little thing I would say quickly too, just so we don't get uh, so we don't get added on Twitter, is that Amulet of Vigor actually is any permanent yes. that enters enters tapped, not just lands. By the way. Yeah. Thanks. I don't I don't know if that actually ever comes up in this deck, but that's a very important distinction. Your Titan uh, is going up against the three mana Thalia and Thalia three. Not frequent, but... So another important line I want to talk about is what happens when you attack with Primeval Titan because you get to fetch two more lands. Assuming you have at least one amulet on the board, you're going to grab often a Sunhome Fortress of the Legion, which reads tap, add colorless, or pay two red, white, tap, target creature gains double strike until end of turn. Likewise, you can grab... A Vesuva to copy your Boros Garrison. Sometimes you're going to do a lot more tricks depending on the board state you've created to potentially copy other cards and sneak lands in at instant speed. But the idea in general at this point is to make your Primeval Titan an 8-6 or a 10-6 double striker, either swinging for lethal in the same turn or setting up a win on the next turn. It's kind of amazing to see when it happens. Yeah. Another thing worth noting is that amulet triggers do stack. So let's say you have two or more amulets on the board and you play one of these Ravnica bounce lands. It enters the battlefield, untaps. You can tap it for mana. The second amulet trigger goes on the stack, untaps the land again. You could tap it for two more mana and float two, four, six, eight mana, depending on how many Azuzas you have on the board or if you have tribe scouts or other ways to sneak in extra lands. Yeah, it's crazy when you watch someone who's like super efficient and super schooled in playing this deck. Like you don't even you can't even really follow what's happening unless you're, you know, deeply in the know on this deck and it's absurd to watch because it's just making piles of mana, stuff's coming into play, bouncing other things out of play, and it it is wild to watch. And you can understand why people would be scared of that, right? When the, your opponent is creating two, four, six, eight mana in a single turn and casting these giant primeval titans or making massive walking ballistas, how are you going to deal with that? Yeah. And I think one thing that I want to remind people of is, it, say you're playing against someone who you know, knows this deck back and forth and you don't, and they're trying to rush through things, like, don't be afraid to ask people to explain things because especially at like a, you know, local game store event, like you're there to learn and it's a pretty casual environment. So you can ask people, and even at a tournament, you can ask people to say, you know, I need you to, you know, walk me through what you're doing, please, because I want to know that we're both on the same page here. Right. And because of all those interactions, your opponent might make a mistake, even if they're a master amulet titan. Things get tricky. 
Yeah, I I have a story of exactly that. I was playing someone at our local game store on this deck, and I hadn't seen this build yet that was running the garrison in the stronghold. So they said, okay, I'm going to play a Primeval Titan, and I'm going to win right now. And it's, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, no, no. What what does that mean? Show me. And they walked me through, like, yeah, so the amulet trigger, I get to respond to these multiple ones. And it's just, oh, wow. Like, there's a lot going on. It's a bunch of moving pieces, and it's very powerful. And it when you shortcut it, it's very quick. But the multiple lines of interaction and the multiple places where you can make small misplays is pretty big. One of the ways I've even seen people do the shortcut is once they cast their Primeval Titan, which lets you fetch the two lands and shuffle, they'll even ask, can I just hold my library? Because they don't have a lot of instant speed draw spells. This deck isn't playing Growth Spiral or anything like that in its current shape. So in some cases, if you trust your opponent, you know you can even allow them to hold their library because they're going to keep fetching lands over and over rather than going through the steps of fetching, shuffle, etc etc which isn't to say that you're going to see that at competitive rules engagement level tournaments but at an lgs level i've let people do that for me so another very important ramp piece in this deck is the aforementioned azusa lost but seeking which is two into green for a one two creature that lets you play two additional lands per turn and to illustrate the power of these three cards azusa the bounce lands and an amulet if you have one of each one Azusa, one Bounce Land, one Amulet, you can produce six mana in that one turn, which is all you need to cast Primeval Titan. All right, so these are your basic building blocks for casting Primeval Titan. There's also supporting cast, which includes four Summoner's Pact to fetch your Primeval Titan, as well as four Ancient Stirring to find Amulets. Likewise, Ancient Stirring can find you lands. Engineered Explosives and Walking Ballista in the deck, which Ancient Stirring picks up too. This was kind of a surprise to me when I started playing a lot more in the last three or four months uh, online to see, like, Ancient Stirrings doesn't totally feel like a fit right away, but Amulet is so important. And then the ability to just grab these really powerful lands and utility lands and things like that obviously makes it an inclusion. I mean, I'm not questioning the card's value there, but I was surprised to see it as a staple of this deck when I really looked at the list because I'm like, oh, it's about casting a big green creature. Mm-hmm. You know, so why would I want this colorless searcher? Well, it just turns out that Ancient Stirrings is so good that it's worth it here, too. Yeah, not only can you use Ancient Stirring to find Amulet, but you can also use it to find a Teleria West, which you transmute to get a Summoner's Pact, which finds you your Primeval Titan. So a lot of the cards work in synergy with one another toward this singular plan of casting Primeval Titan as quickly as possible. Yeah, Teleria West serves as a really neat linchpin sort of catch-all in this deck, because not only can it grab the pack, but it can grab Engineer Explosives off the sideboard, sometimes even main. It can also grab Walking Ballista, and even lands. It's just very powerful. Some decks also have extra ramp spells, either in the form of creatures, such as Sakura Tribe Scout, which taps to put lands from your hand onto the battlefield. I've also seen people run Explore... Um, I've also seen people do Coalition Relic and Pentet Prism as well. Some players also have Trinket Mage to dig up your amulets or your extra artifacts for a little more consistency. It's just this whole web of enablers that when you see them on, on the screen the first time you see a deck list here, you're like, that looks like a pile of cards. And then you're like, oh, I get it. Really, everything here is pretty tuned to be able to do what you need to do to either get to amulet either get to prime time or get to one of your utility cards. Yeah, like I'd mentioned before, when I play against this deck with Scred, Blood Moon's very good. 
and you're able to land it and lock them out. But if they land a primal titan, my removal can't deal with that. And even if I can, even if I have the double bolt or scred and bolt, they have a way to fetch up another primeval titan. And I only have so much removal and you have to what feels like titan after titan. It just, the deck is very powerful and has a lot of redundancy and it just feels like every single match I have to think of every line and play to every out because if I make a single misstep, they're there with a giant 6-6. I'm loving like the addition of walking ballista and engineered explosives because when you you can transmute into those because they're essentially zero CMC spells and so if you have a ton of mana and seek up a walking ballista you can just clear their whole board or and then just go to the dome the next next turn so it does a lot of work there too and is easy to tutor up yeah it's also an alternate win condition so let's say your primeval titans get surgical you can still produce a ton of mana to make a giant ballista and then just blow their face up in a single turn if you need to usually walking ballista and engineer explosives are one ofs in the amulet titan 60 but you can look out for more more copies in the sideboard especially engineer explosives is a very good card in this deck because this deck can produce five colors of mana thanks to the gemstone caverns and all of the bounce lands in there. So watch out, Koth. Oh, <laughs> leave him alone. The last couple things worth mentioning is the deck has utility lands, which we talked about previously. You can have a one of Bajuka Bog in most lists to deal with graveyard decks in game one. You'll have Colony Garden to deal with creature decks and Kabira Crossroads to deal with burn or if you need to gain a little bit of extra life. It's kind of surprising how much life you can gain off of uh, Kabira Crossroads, right? Like it's usually six or eight life that I think you can, I've seen have people do against me, maybe even 10 occasionally. And that really puts a damper on like mono red Phoenix's game plan. Yeah, it's a lot. And then the last thing we should go over quickly is the deck sideboard. So though there's lots of flexibility in any modern sideboard, some of the themes that are shared across a lot of these Amulet Titan decks are interactive spells come up. So Path to Exile and Negate are really popular. Extra Engineered Explosives. And I've even been running a few Spell Pierce in the deck that was given to me. You also see extra threats that can come in depending on the matchup. Rurik Thar is used against burn decks. Hornet Queen comes up against creature decks like humans or spirits. And then Thrag Tusk, Obstinate Bayloth, and Sigarda are also possible sideboard cards that your opponent might be playing. Yeah, I hate seeing Obstinate Bayloth when I'm playing anything that's trying to be aggressive. It can gain so much life. Yeah, I played that in Vanifar the, over, the, over the weekend, and it basically just won me a game against Burn by itself. Because you can attack with it, and also it gains you four life. So it's it's a card that I think people forget about a lot. So the best cards, in my opinion, to use against Amulet Titan decks are Blood Moon and Damping Sphere. As we mentioned, they can deal with these because of your sideboard Reclamation Sages, as well as your Engineered Explosives. So you still need a clock to deal with, you know, winning the game. These cards won't win you outright, though they can. I mean, a, a well-timed Blood Moon, if I'm not expecting it, and if I don't have a green source, will pretty much lock me out until you've clocked me with a 2-2, if that's all you've got. I think it's interesting that the best cards, that you feel like the best cards are cards that attack the the mana base, and not so much cards that make it easier for you to kill Primeval Titan. Well, that was my next point. I think clean removal for Primeval Titan is also very important. But Primeval Titan produces so much value as soon as it enters the battlefield that, in general, you don't necessarily even want your opponent casting it. Because, in theory, if they've cast Primeval Titan and it enters the battlefield, 
Sure, you can remove it, but they could fetch for Teleria West as soon as it enters. And then if they have a bounce land in their hand, they bounce back that Teleria West and just get another prime time pretty quickly. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I think that all really speaks to the the point I alluded to earlier, which is just how powerful Primeval Titan is. And even if you remove it, they can either cast another powerful threat or another Primeval Titan. The act of playing the card is just really pushing them that much further. Yeah. It it feels like every time I play this that I think you said a minute ago, Zach, there's Titan after Titan after Titan after Titan. It's like, how do you cast all four of these cards? Well, it's because they have all these different ways to get them in their hand. Yeah, you can also bring Artifact Hate in against the amulets themselves because those are so critical to the deck's plan. But again, a lot of these sideboard strategies are ultimately buying you time. This isn't a deck that's just going to fold to a single piece of hate. So in addition to the sideboard strategies, some game one tips that you can have for beating this deck is uh, bouncing their lands in response to pack triggers. So let's say, for instance, you have a Cryptic Command and they use Summoner's Pact. In response to the Summoner's Pact trigger on their upkeep, if you have Cryptic up, you can target a land, bounce back a green source, and sometimes force them to lose because they don't have the means to pay the Summoner's Pact trigger. That is a, an amazing play. I, I will definitely keep that in mind. That's a hilarious way to, to lose. The packs their triggers is an effect that we don't see on really any other cards in modern that operate in this weird upkeep space. So it's something that's easy to mess with and people don't often think about how they might play around an upkeep trigger. Yeah, in general, and especially in game one, if you are playing a linear aggro or combo deck, or you're just light on interaction, this is one of those modern decks that feel like ships passing in the night because the amulet player is just trying to make prime time to swing and you're doing your own linear aggro thing. So while Titan is capable of very explosive plays on turn two or three or four, the amulet player's lack of game one interaction can clear the way for you to get in under them. So this is a keyword go faster matchup depending on what you're playing in modern. Yeah, it's, like a, it's a goldfish deck, right? More or less. And so you want a goldfish against it. Yeah, and when we say goldfishing, we mean um, basically playing like your opponent's a goldfish and not doing anything. So you're just trying to see uh, how quickly you can combo off or, or kill someone. If you are a control player, your rats are probably going to be more valuable than your counter spells because amulet players do have at least one Cavern of Souls in their main. They also can have counters uh, such as Pact of Negation um, in their 60, so beware of counter wars. But because of how vulnerable Prime Evil Titan can be to counter spells, they will often run an extra Cavern of Souls in their sideboard too. And then if you're playing mid-range, you really want to punch holes in their ramp if you can, and saving your unconditional removal spells for Primeval Titans. Likewise, if you have Surgical, targeting Primeval Titan with that is really good. If they're not prepared for it, then they'll just run out of win conditions. And when I mention punching holes in their ramp, I mean taking out Azusa's, taking out Summoner's Pact, taking out Ambulance. Cool. So there are other Primeval Titan decks that we're going to go over now, and primarily we'll look at their plan and how their plan is different from Amulet Titan. And the first one we want to talk about is Titan Shift, which is one that pops up with a fair amount of regularity. So like Stan said, an example that we see pop up with really good regularity is Titan Shift. And, you know, this is always on the 5-0 lists. It shows up at tournaments. It just came in fourth at GB Toronto. It places at SEGs, all that stuff. So you're going to want to understand this game plan a little bit too and how to fight it as well. 
Um, and so this really leans into the fetching ability of Primeval Titan. And then it wants you to win with like the Valakit and Scapeshift combo. So if you aren't aware, Valakit, the Molten Pinnacle, is an evil land. <laughs> it is an evil land. Yeah, so to uh, give people a little bit of information on Valakit, if you haven't seen it, haven't played against it, you're lucky. But what it does is... It is it'll it's it's a untyped land, so it's just a land. It's not a mountain or anything like that. But when a whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, and you control at least five other mountains, you may have Valakit, the Molten, Molten Pinnacle, deal three damage to target creature or player. It also taps for red. So the trick is that you know either you eventually get five other mountains onto the battlefield um, and start dealing damage to people in a uh, you know pinging them, or you cast scapeshift when you have the requisite amount of lands on the battlefield, which can be as few as say five or six, depending on how much damage the uh, opponent has done to themselves or you've done to them already. So what scapeshift is, it's a two green, green sorcery. And what it allows you to do is sacrifice any number of lands you have on the battlefield and then search your library for up to that many lands and then put them onto the battlefield tapped then shuffle your library. So it lets you turn whatever lands you have already played into, say, a Valakit and then a bunch of mountains or mountain-typed cards. And so all the lands see them enter at the same time. So if you bring in Valakit and, say, five other mountains, you deal... What is that? Fifteen damage. Correct? Fifteen damage. Yeah, yeah. Or if right. you, or if you deal, you know, if you have six mountains come in at the same time as Valakit, you do eighteen, and that's certainly, almost certainly, going to be lethal to uh, most opponents. So what Titan Shift does then is it does a lot of ramp. So it has Sakura Tribe Elder, Search for Tomorrow, Far Seek, Explore, Colony Heart Expedition, and so it's just trying to get a bunch of lands onto the battlefield as fast as possible so that you can cast scapeshift as fast as possible and then deal that 18 to you know, 21 amount of damage to your opponent. This can happen, you know, dealing the requisite amount of damage from Valakit can happen somewhat quickly with a resolve scapeshift after you get all those lands onto the battlefield or with prime time, you can do it a little bit more slowly. So you get a prime time beat and you're also getting those lands as it's entering the battlefield and attacking, you know, maybe getting that needed Valakit into play that you haven't been able to get out of your deck yet. So it's pretty efficient and it kind of just adds to the redundancy of a traditional scapeshift deck. So it can slow the opponent down with things like main deck Anger of the Gods, which usually is like a two of right now. It usually have a few lightning bolts to get rid of some problematic creatures or whittle the opponent's life total down to then make it, you know, one fewer land required to, to get your lethal Valakit. So how do you guys try to hate out this deck? Because th- things like Damping Sphere doesn't shut off their lands. I mean, number one is I play to... I mean, for a lot of the decks that I play, I try to up my my count of negates that I have available to just try to get rid of scapeshift is the number one thing. Now, that's just with blue decks, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, fighting scapeshift is a good way to kind of make sure you don't get combo killed. And then you can buy yourself a little bit of time to kill uh, prime time. One of the things that's important to mention is that Blood Moon, while it seems counterintuitive against this deck, it does shut off Valakut. So I'm curious what you guys think about Blood Moon in this matchup, whether you would even bring it in to maybe prevent them from getting that Valakut value. Oh, entirely. You have to. Like, if you have Blood yeah. Moon, you bring it in. I think you're not as excited about it as you are against the uh, the other, the Amulet Titan deck, but it does help you keep, it turns Valakut off. 
Yeah, stopping my opponent from out of nowhere dealing 15 to 18 damage to me is a, a move I want to make. Weird. Weird. Why? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> Call me a freak. I don't know. That's really weird. Um, I think the main way you beat this this deck is you have to go faster. It's almost always a race. Like, this deck is pretty much on rails. Like, no offense to people who love, like, Scape Shift or Titan Shift style decks. But you are just doing the essentially exact same thing nearly every game you play. And so you just need to do your thing faster than them. So, you know, if you're sticking a large delve threat, you know, a big goif they can't remove with the anger of the gods or a lightning bolt, you back that up with like some hand disruption or like a team or battle rage that can do a lot. Um, combo decks that just goldfish faster, like storm or amulet Titan you know, or ad nauseum or, you know, in fact, you're likely to have a good matchup there. It's, you just have to look out for their post-board additional anchors and you know hope they don't gain life off of their obstinate Bayloths that you know hold you off from from beating them with like a you know a burn type strategy. Would you guys say that Titan Shift or any Valakit Scape Shift deck is kind of a slow, clunky combo that's generally outmoded by faster, more consistent combos? Because I find that if you can win by turn four or five, that's usually all you need to do. So here's the interesting thing to me is that I was kind of with you until you said more consistent. I feel like there's this kind of speed versus consistency thing that you trade for with Scapeshift, where Scapeshift is super consistent, but it's not fast. So not that fast. I mean, I agree with Shane that it's kind of a race, but it's generally, you're going to get there by like turn five or turn six, sometimes turn four. It's not like Storm where you, where when it works, it's going to work on turn four. Or when mm. it's really going to work, it works on turn three. But I do think that you go off basically every time you play this deck because you're yes. going to get to pieces yes. that make it work. That's kind of the difference that I that I see with that in general is like you want to trade consistency for speed. Titan Shift is kind of a deck to do that. That's a good point, Dave. I mean, because if like, you know, if you just wanted the fastest combo, you just run like a Grishel brand type strategy over and over again and like, you know, get there on turn two. Three percent of the time, yeah, yeah. So some of the things you'll see, uh, Titan Shift bring in against you in the sideboard are you know some more big creatures. Like they'll probably have two to four. I saw four in a recent tournament of Obstinate Bayloth, which is I think pretty smart in a burn and Phoenix heavy metagame. It just gains you so much life and provides those additional beats. Um, Carnage Tyrant is showing up as a one of just because it has that, you know, that really sticky threat. And in a kind of a value long game, it has tireless trackers to really provide a lot of value in those slower, grindier matchups as well. Or maybe they do surgical your prime time. Yeah. So I think that kind of sums up Titan Shift pretty well. Um, and I, next we have Titan Breach. And so we're going to bounce back to stand for that one. Yeah. Yeah. There's another variation on Titan Shift which, as Shane mentioned, is called Titan Breach, and it's really easy to explain and understand. It essentially shaves some of the main deck ramp spells to make room for Through the Breach, and the plan here is to make a hasty prime time that finds you four lands and sets up that same Valakut finish. So this version also might have some Spirit guides for quick bursts of mana, but in general, Titan Breach is a lot like the Scapeshift decks. And this is just another counterspell target for you. But it's trading speed for consistency probably, right? Like, it's adding velocity to the deck, but making it easier to have it fail. Yeah, that's true. It's also worth mentioning that this version of the deck isn't running that Slayer's Stronghold package because it already has the Through the Breach to give the creatures haste, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have Sun Home, so you're not dealing with big double-striking Primeval Titans. 
Yeah, this one is exclu- is mostly trying to kill you with Valakut, right? Yeah, but dealing six damage with a hasty trampling titan beast seems pretty good too. Yeah. All right, the last deck we want to talk about in this family is called Hive Titan, which our boy Zach has the most experience with. Yeah, so this is a deck that, for whatever reason, when I first started playing Modern, popped up a lot in my local meta. It's pretty interesting, and as we can tell from the name, it's running the namesake card Primeval Titan, but also the card Hivemind. And Hivemind is a six-mana enchantment, five and one blue, that reads, Whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery spell, each other player copies that spell. Each other of those players may choose new targets for their copy. So the way that this card slots in this deck, so it's a card you're ramping into because you're making lots of mana. How you're using it to win is using the packs, which we've been mentioning throughout this episode. So Summoner's Pact and uh, Pact Negation are the most popular. So these are cards that cost zero mana and have a powerful on-color effect that create a delayed upkeep trigger where you pay this or lose the game. A scenario is you have Hive Mind out, and on your turn, you're going to cast Summoner's Pact. Summoner's Pact reads, search your library for a green creature card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Then the upkeep trigger, at the beginning of your next upkeep, you pay two green green. If you don't, lose the game. You play that. Hivemind is forcing them to cast the spell. It's not a May ability. Hivemind's making them also cast Summoner's Pact. So you play it, they play it. They want to search out a creature, they go for it. Their turn comes around, they have to pay that two green green. Some decks can't make green green. You win. Hopefully you're playing against someone who doesn't have green. You also have Pact of Negation, a counterspell that is three and two blue for a similar effect. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I've seen people run, yeah, all the other packs too. They run the red one. They run the black one because all of those are reasonable utility cards that you could pay for. And that, but on the other hand, you find the one that your opponent can't pay for. I want to mention, and I could be mistaken, but if, if I'm, if my research is accurate, then Hive Mind was actually a staple in the old Summer Bloom decks. So this is kind of the old tech appearing in a French version of the new modern deck. It was also a standalone deck on its own towards the, the beginning of modern. There were just decks that were just Hive Mind decks without prime time or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hive Mind not being a May ability is so interesting to me that you're forcing people to cast these spells. And it's just so interesting that that spells you're able to just deal with the downside. Some people, it reads, lose the game on your upkeep. Mm-hmm. So we can just go over real quick how this deck is different from the stock list and the decks we mentioned. And a big thing is the amount of creatures. So typical list for Hive Mind Titan or Hive Titan are only running seven or eight creatures, while the list that Stan mentioned at the top is running 18 to 20. So you're cutting all these creatures for more filtering and more protection. So you have a better way to reach Hivemind. You have a better way to protect Hivemind once you've been able to resolve it. Another place is the sideboard. The sideboard for this deck is a little more diverse. You have a lot more one-ofs, and you run the card Swansong, which is also to protect your large six-mana win condition. So for how to play against this deck, it's really similar to the advice we've been saying this whole episode. You want to disrupt their mana, and you want to land a card that is hard for them to deal with. So Blood Moon's very good here because the deck doesn't run any basic islands, so it's very hard for them to land a hive mind or pay for their pact after you get a Blood Moon out. And you have to go fast against this deck. This deck is another deck that represents inevitability in the same way that Scapeshift does, where maybe it's not going to have a hive mind on turn three, but once it gets out, you're you're going to lose most likely. So if you can try to stop them before they land that pivotal enchantment, that's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So guys. I need to ask you a question then. Of all these Titan decks, 
which one do you think is the strongest right now? I mean, I know we see the most Amulet Titan, but just a few months ago, a Hive Titan deck made the finals of an SEG, and Titan Shift shows up in all sorts of lists all the time, and you know, just made top four at GP Toronto. So, is there one that's overtly better, or is just kind of like what's what game plan do you want to be playing? My guess is that Amulet Titan, in part, is popping up more often, is because it's the best. But the challenge is that it's so hard to pilot because you're making all these micro decisions based on which land is going to give you the most value in a very specific instance, as well as which lands might get you out of a tight spot or can even win on the spot for you. And one of the things that does, akin to other combo decks, is you are in these situations where you might win on the spot, but you might just as easily lose very quickly because you misplayed so dramatically. Yeah, I think what Stan mentioned earlier about the Titan Shift combo being a little bit slower, uh, but like Dave said, maybe a little bit more consistent. I think I'm curious as to when that's the best deck to bring out, where maybe you're expecting a slightly slower metagame and you think that I'm going to, I'm just going to win off the consistency of my, my scape shift combo. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Titan, I mean, Titan Amulet feels pretty consistent to me too, honestly. So I think that when I, when I was talking about that consistency about Titan Shift, it was mostly against other combo decks with their propensity to kind of flame out or, or work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think for as long as, you know, Amulet is there and doing work, as long as that kind of core cards, like with Ancient Stirrings is still around, it's going to be pretty hard to walk away from all of the thought that's gone into architecting the Amulet version of this deck. So guys, what did we learn here? I think that the important things to hit on are that all of these Titan decks are essentially really consistent combo decks with different rates of speed, very slightly different rates of speed. Um, they rely on their mana base in different ways to execute their combo and finish off the game. They have somewhat flexible sideboards to fight against the things that would beat them, such as uh, they have life gain in terms of Obstinate Veiloth and Thragtusk. So if you see a lot of these decks in your, in your local game store or, sh- or you're going to a tournament, you're expecting to face some of these, how do you want to attack them? And so like we talked about, you want to hit their mana base first and foremost, and you want to have an understanding of what your most aggressive game plans can be. So if you're just an aggro deck in the first place, you are going to want to keep your aggressive hands and just try to goldfish faster than they are. Um, if you are a slower deck or a mid-range deck, you're going to probably want to do one of two things and either keep your most aggressive hands or mulligan to your most aggressive hands. Or if you get the disruption you think you need, like say you have a Thoughtseize surgical extraction and you can get rid of a really important piece out of their opening hand, then you can think about keeping a hand like that and then trying to establish a clock and getting them that way. Or if you have blood moons in your sideboard, you know, get that turn three blood moon down while also establishing a clock and beat them to the punch. Any things I'm missing, guys? I don't think so. I think the only question I have is, is Stan, now that you've put in 15, 20, 25 matches with this deck, do you think you're going to go back? Is it a fun deck to play? Do you, How does it compare to other experiences you've had recently? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I kind of can't wait to stop playing it, but not because I think the deck is bad. <laughs> it's just so 
fundamentally different than everything else I'm doing in modern. And perhaps if I had a little more experience with Tron, or perhaps if I had a little more experience with Scapeshift, it might speak to me more, or might be more familiar to me. But because I'm so used to casting blue-red spells and cantrips and holding up counter spells and bolts and trying to inch away damage rather than doing these really big combo finishes, it was so foreign to me that after I learned it, I was pretty ready to move on. That said, the Scapeshift version of it does look pretty fun. And I've played against that one online a couple times. So I kind of want to try that out and see whether I can pull off some Scapeshift finishes rather than trying to figure out all the right lands to play in a single game that might get me a few extra points of equity. It certainly reduces the lines a little bit, right? Because you're just kind of like, how can I how can I get out so many Valica triggers? <laughs> if Bogles is too dynamic for you, play Scapeshift. I thought six months ago you said if if uh, Bogles was too dynamic, play Dredge. I don't think I said that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so while we're on the topic of lands, I have a question for all you guys. Please. Um, are these decks the sort of decks where if you have a Molten Rain or Fulmin or Mage in your sideboard, you're bringing it in? God, you love Molten Rain. You love Molten Rain so much. I am an advocate. I have bought 30 foil copies that I am looking to move. <laughs> M- hashtag MTG Finance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your number one podcast. For buying our poor decisioned <laughs> magic <laughs> singles. Only buy our cards. I think if you, if you have a surgical, then sure, bring in some land destruction. I don't uh, know. I, wait, you wait, think wait, it's, wait, you think, wait. You think it's good enough just as a zone? Well, I, I think it depends on which deck you're playing. I don't think that like point land destruction is that great out of the sideboard against Amulet. No. Like, I think it's helpful, but they're still going to get to do a bunch of stuff. I do think if you play against Titan Shift, there's a good chance that you can get a Valakut and slow them down enough for you to be able to kill them or something like that. So I think if you're playing against the Valakut versions, that kind of removal is probably good. If you're playing against the one that just does all the crazy stuff with Slayer Stronghold, it might be less effective. I would follow that up with same for if you're playing Hive Titan, anything to keep them from casting Hive Mind as soon as they can is a good move to make. So a spicy little piece of sideboard land hate that I encountered recently from friend of the show Martin, who plays Were Prison. You can name Valakit with Unmoored Ego and basically shut off an entire Wincon if you're ever playing against that deck. Whether or not Unmoored Ego is a modern staple yet, time will tell. Not modern playable, a modern staple. <laughs> and I think one, th- one, th- one thing we didn't mention against Valakit decks is uh, things like Ghost Quarter and Field of Ruin can do some work for you there too, especially in combined with like a Surgical. Yeah, less effective against... I mean, I think they help Disruption against Amulet Titan because if you get a Bounce Land with a Field of Ruin, it's pretty good and might help be enough of a speed bump to give you a turn or two. But yeah, it's very good against decks with Valakit where it's just hard, you know... They can't necessarily search up all of them all the time. I have a question for you guys. Please. So when I started playing Amulet Titan and suggested that you guys give it a war of your own, you were all pretty reluctant. So either does this conversation change anything about the way you see Amulet Titan or any of the Primeval Titan decks? Or maybe can you elaborate why you didn't want to even give it a shot? So I remember when Amulet Bloom was uh, coming into be a player and justin cohen was probably the best player of it and he has a semi-famous quote or at least famous to me which was you know if you aren't getting slow play warnings when you're playing amulet bloom then you're playing it wrong you know so it's just like a deck that you have to tank 
for so much, you really have to know what your options are. You have to think many turns ahead. And it's not the way I typically like to play modern, which makes me sound like I like playing stupid decks. But uh, more or less, it's, um, yeah, it seems like a hard deck. It seems like a deck that's challenging to learn, challenging to execute. I think playing it on Magic Online is a really good idea, though, Stan, because you get to learn how all those triggers work and really get to learn how to play it well. Yeah, speaking of slow play, I lost count of how many games I lost to the clock just because I have my hands on my head and I'm staring at the screen and trying to figure out the exact right land and the exact course of action to line up some weird land sequence to get me out of a tight spot that I ended up just losing to because I spent more than 25 minutes thinking. I think it's a really good deck to learn how to do that. I think many players don't really like to think many turns ahead. And I think that's what separates, you know, average players from great players. And I think that's, it's good to practice that. Zach and Dave, what do you guys think? The only thing I would say is I just feel like it's a whole other like zone of decks to learn. And I'm working on some other stuff. Would you say a you bucket, know, like, Dave? Yeah, sir. It's a whole other bucket of decks to learn. And I don't really want to dip my toes in that bucket right now. And I'm more interested in in a couple of other things that are going on. But I think it's been a great discussion to just see how to beat it because man, I really, I lose to this deck all the time. And so it's super, it's super annoying. So I'm glad to hear uh, some people's thoughts on how to get better against it. For me, it was never that I thought the deck wasn't good. I've played against this deck a lot and have maybe won only slightly more than I've lost. But even then, it's a very good deck with a consistent win rate. For me, I'm just going to echo what Dave said in that it's in a different space than I normally play in. I'm playing usually red decks or mid-range decks, of which this is really neither. It reminds me a lot of Blue Tron, in a way, where there's a lot of one-ofs and a lot of interesting fringe interactions where you're trying to do things that are maybe not typical or unordinary for modern, but still a very powerful deck, but there's so many decision trees. Choosing a wrong branch somewhere might put you in a place later where you can no longer win. Yeah, cool. All right, that was really fun, guys. Thank you. I think this really wraps up a very excellent conversation about Amulet Titan. Probably the best conversation about Amulet Titan you'll ever hear on a free podcast. We're going to take a quick break. There's better ones on the paid podcasts. <laughs> yeah, find find it on Stitcher. Good luck. All right, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, it will be the wind down where we answer another listener question. Stay with us. So do you guys think that, that uh, anything in Amulet Titan this time is going to be powerful enough to get the old Banhammer, or is it a fair deck? Well, I mean, they took it out of EDH, right? Primetime? They did take it out of EDH. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if Primeval Titan got a ban. It's so good. I know it's six mana cards maybe don't look ban-worthy on the surface, but when you see that card grab four lands in one turn, it feels bad. Yeah, why do you ask, Dave? Well, I mean, we got a listener question this week about uh, deck bannings, and so it just seemed like an interesting transition given that the deck we spent all this time talking about was a survivor of a ban. Yeah, my my online buddy, Craig, listener of the show, he sent us a question this week. What do you do when your favorite deck is hit with a ban? And so since a, you know we just lost uh, KCI, we've lost some cards you know, over the past few years, uh, we thought it'd be a fun question to talk about a little bit. Dave, and I know that's a very close friend. Who who here has had a deck, that their modern deck banned? No. Anybody? <laughs> None of you guys? Well, there was that one week where Scred was banned, but then it was promptly unbanned because they realized it was, in fact, underpowered. Yeah. <laughs> it was a typo in the master list that was sent off. Koth of the Hammer? Restricted? 
<laughs> not banned, just one. You only get one. So I have had my deck banned. Uh, so I used to play Splinter Twin. Maybe you guys don't remember that from podcasts past. So when I started playing um, in in modern, I started out with Jeskai Control, which we've you know talked about a couple of times about how hard it is to play Control well. And when I was just starting to really kind of get serious about my Magic game, I was like, I'm just going to jump right into Control. Bad idea. So I had all these staples in blue and red, and I went looking for a more active deck. And the deck I landed on was Splinter Twin because I had a good Plan A. I could I could pilot it with you know towards where I wanted to. To, to victory instead of towards a reactive plan. And so um, that was definitely something that I was doing for a couple of years. And I was playing a lot of Splinter Twin. I played Red Blue. I was really into Grixis Splinter Twin, which is one of the kind of weirder decks that emerged around... Uh, around. That. It was one of the first Coligan's Command decks, basically, oh. that there was in, in Modern. You know, just as a side note, is Coligan's Command like in your top five cards? Uh, personal favorites? Yeah. Like you love, you love K-Command. It's probably top ten. Okay, for you me. talk about Colgon's command the way I talk about Molten Rain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except for mine is good in most situations, no, no, and you yours know, is good in specific Molten Rain situations. is a perfectly cromula card. <laughs> it, it is. So anyway, so I was definitely someone who was kind of like just about to start getting out to play some more modern tournaments when uh, Splinter Twin was taking over the meta, and then Bam got hit with a ban, and well, what I did was I took a look at my collection. And I looked at the cards that I had and I was kind of like, okay, I guess I have to keep in mind that decks that do broken things or try to flirt with breaking the turn four threshold are decks that will constantly be at risk for a ban. So the first, so I did two things. One was I kind of evaluated what decks I could make out of the other cards that I had to see if I could easily pivot into something else. And the other thing was I sort of, got a little bit more cautious about buying into decks with expensive cards that um, could be hit by bands. Now, fortunately, Splinter Twin was not that expensive at the time that I that I bought into it. I, I think I had to pay $10 or $12 a piece for Splinter Twins. I had the other cards for the deck, basically. And so there wasn't really too much going on there other than I finally had to buy a place out of Misty Rainforest to make it work. So what I did was I looked at my favorite cards that I had left, which were Snapcaster Mage, Cryptic Command, Lightning Bolt, things like that. And I kind of switched back over into, into Jeskai for a while, even though it wasn't that great. And kind of made plans to buy a different deck that was less likely to be affected by bands in the future. And that's how I ended up putting money into Burn and Black White Taxes and a couple other things like that to just have some secondary modern decks to play with. Does that sound correct to you guys or what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think you're getting at a really good point, which I want to immediately out here is when your deck's hit with a ban, I think you have to look at your deck list and think about how critical this card is to your deck and if there's a comparable card. I mean, typically it is, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So is is your deck, is the card getting banned because your deck's the oppressive deck or is the card in your deck a mm. bystander of the ban? Yeah, good point. So something that people have asked me about before, and this is how I'm going to fit my mind into it, is if what if Blood Moon got banned? I don't think it's that oppressive, but it's not a it's a unique effect, not impossible something that could happen. For a deck like mine, Blood Moon really is sort of a glue that keeps it together. So I think I would have to look somewhere else or totally turn into another deck because of how powerful that card is. That's only an example, but I think you just have to think about, is this the backbone of my deck or is this a part of my filtering or a part of what's getting me to my main backbone? I have great news for you, Zach. I've got a card with the exact same text as Blood Moon on it, and it's also a creature that attacks for two. 
Does it have amazing steampunk artwork? Yes. He he does look kind of steampunky. Yeah, it's all the gears. Yeah, but then it gets hit with a, a lightning bolt. Yeah, the Blood Moon was more of a, a a fun thought experiment. No, it's a great it's a great point because people do talk about removing that, and I but I think there's a lot less risk with a card like that than there is one that lets you do an infinite combo, yeah. a you know something that generates an insane amount of mana, something that lets you do a repetitive effect over and over again, a la KCI. So I I just kind of learned a little bit from that and got a little bit kind of like loss averse to buying into decks like that if they're expensive like storm is a pretty cheap modern deck so i think even if something was to happen to have storm get banned or get weakened um eventually it would probably come back but also it's cheap yeah i think it's interesting too that uh this question was asked during this episode because you know amulet bloom uh summer bloom got banned and then it you know took maybe almost a year and by the end of the year, there were functional versions of Amulet Titan. And you know, over the next two years, that deck has really you know evolved and been refined to be the thing it is now, which is a you know a top tier deck. And so I think that, like Zach mentioned, you can look at your deck and say, you know, is this card an in- integral part of my strategy? And if so, can uh, other cards replace it? Maybe not quite as well. Or do I need to pivot into an entirely different strategy that uses some of the same cards like Dave mentioned? So I think you kind of have a few choices there, right? I mean, my choice would be just choose one of my other like eight modern decks. Yeah, do a little tweaking and pick a new 75. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tweak your 75 (laughs) to be something totally different. Yeah, that's what I'll do because I'm a crazy person with too many modern cards. Yeah. I think one thing is that the way to build a collection in modern, I think, is to think about staples, kind of like cards that are used across multiple decks versus the sort of like enablers, which are the cards that manage to fit only in a specific deck or a specific archetype of decks. And I kind of try to keep it balanced now between the two where, you know, I want to play a deck with cryptic commands. Okay, that's expensive, but I I know I'm going to be able to use those in a lot of different decks. But at the same time, um, I want to keep an eye on cards like maybe like Search for Asconta, which is a medium expensive card, but only sees play in a few different decks. And so I know that I really don't need a full play set of those. And also, I, uh, I, I know that I'm only going to use them in one deck, so I have to figure out how often I'm going to use that one deck they're in. We didn't talk about how cards in Storm have been banned, but they have not banned the, the payoff card, which are the Storm actual cards. Yeah. But they're banning the enablers, so the deck is finding a way to continue to exist and find replacements. That's because there's redundancy there. I mean, they banned Seething Song, right? And they banned Rite of Flame back in the day because they were just two good aversions, especially in a meta where there was also a Pyretic and Desperate Rituals. And so now we're back to the point where we only have a couple of rituals and it's like, eh, if it gets too good, we're going to take one of those away. And then that might be the nail that finally. <laughs> well, we, they also banned Gitaxian Probe, which oh, is a yeah. card that was very powerful in that deck. So we've yeah. seen multiple cards banned out of Storm, but they are not banning the card that wins games, which is Grape Shot and Empty the Wardens. Which means they're letting it live, basically. Exactly. So yeah. this is an important way to look at how a, a ban's going into effect. They're not banning Grape Shot. Okay. So I might have some other cards that can fill the, the space that the card they banned. It's a good point. Yeah, so I guess you you can look at your deck and say, you know, does this have enough redundancy, or is th- is this just a slightly worse version of what I was playing before? Or like you said, if they banned Grape Shot, then it would just be gutted, and your cards would not be that useful anymore. Well, well sorry, Gut Shot's not banned yet. 
yet. Yeah, yet. We'll see. I don't think so. I mean, I mean, it's Storm has fallen off from being a tier one deck right now and isn't showing up as often. But you know, it doesn't take too much for it to to swing back and be a big player. Yeah. So I guess what we would say to Craig is first decide if the card that was banned is integral to the deck or if it's something that you can recover from and make a slightly worse version of it or there's some options for. The second is look at the staples that you have in your in that de- particular deck and see if that easily lets you pivot to something else. And then the third is sort of live and learn and, and move on and maybe pay, uh, have a balanced deck portfolio where you have some broken decks and some non-broken decks in your stable diversify your stocks diversify we just talked earlier about the the new sort of kci-ish desk deck from canister right and so you know if you keep your eye on what players who are really expert at certain decks like matt nass with uh with amulet bloom you know he brings this deck to a tournament and you could get on that earlier before some of the maybe expensive cards in that pop back up like you know we saw that anvil card or whatever the heck it you know, went up like 20 bucks in paper Man, I need to go look at my bulk box and see if I have any of those from Scars. Daddy needs some store credit. <laughs> yeah, so just, you know, keep if you keep your eye on things, you can you can beat uh MTG financiers to the punch and, you know, uh if someone reconfigures a deck pretty quickly to keep the strategy alive, then you can jump on that too. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode of the Dive Down. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out every Friday. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating or a review because that can help us find new listeners in the future. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. And we typically have some fun conversations in our thread every week. You can find me on twitch.tv slash stan underscore i-s-l-a-v i'm going to be doing some evening modern leagues as well as some potential weekend morning leagues in the weeks to come say hello on chat give a shout out to the dive down love to know if uh, any of our listeners find me on there i'm there a lot with my child watching stan (laughs) i've watched you on the train before that's how we spend a saturday afternoon he cast lightning bolt yeah If you're lucky, you might even catch a glimpse of my cat, Andy. Today on my stream, he sat on my lap for like close to an hour. So I moved my camera to just be a close-up on his face, and the people loved it. That's what gets you listeners. Are you using our podcast to brag about how much your cat likes you? He's a very handsome boy, and he deserves everyone's love and respect. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. Until next week, get out there and break the... Meta! Excuse me, we're at the dive down now. Excuse me, is this stop the dive down? <laughs> Mister, I gotta go to the dive down. Could you show me which way to the dive down? <laughs> it's right here, Dave. You found it. I, I have exact fare to get to the dive down. <laughs> the dive down.